and welcome to the first official episode of Making Sense of Money. I'm one of your hosts, Nikki Giancola Shanks. And I'm Andrea Pellegrini. Uh, today, our focus is on the importance of maintaining a checking and or savings account. We'll talk about what it means to be unbanked or underbanked and how it has a ripple effect on a person's life. We'll talk more about the services both banks and credit unions provide and answer some common questions about these financial institutions. We're joined today by two experts in the field who are both directors at the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. We have the Director of Banking, Chase Raywinkle, and the Director of Financial Institutions, Francisco Menchaca. Director Raywinkle, why don't you get us started and introduce yourself? Thank you, Nikki. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I, my name is uh, Chase Raywinkle, and I am the Acting Director of the Division of Banking, which is a one of the four main divisions under um, the Illinois uh, Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Um, in, in the Division of Banking, we regulate all state chartered banking institutions. There's roughly 300 of those in uh, Illinois. And then we also regulate a couple of other items, some uh, non-bank mortgage lenders, uh, as well as student loan servicers and pawnbrokers. And Director Menchaca, can you explain your role? Yes, thank you, Nikki. And uh, hello, everybody. My name is Francisco Menchaca, and I am a, another division that's part of the Division of Financial and Professional Regulation. And my division is called the Division of Financial Institutions. And within our division, uh, we have very curiously, we have credit unions, but we also have other non-depository financial institutions such as um, currency exchange or what some folks call uh, check cashers. We have money transmitters. We have consumer lenders, payday lenders. Um, we also have uh, sales finance companies and uh, title insurance companies. So a wide variety of financial services uh, that we find at the Division of Financial Institutions. Great. And can you guys tell each tell us why you think it's important for people to have access to financial institutions? Uh, I can go first on that and then um, Francisco. Um, so one of the big important pieces of, of being banked is uh, having uh, safe access to your, to your money that, it, that is being earned, um, safe access to transfers of your money. So that's going from bank account to bank account, from, from your bank account to your bills, um, and also um, to try to avoid uh, any sort of fees that are uh, associated with cashing a check or uh, getting lending from your, um, uh, for a small business or something like that. These are, these are options that are provided through banks and credit unions um, and maybe not so much in other financial institutions or done through other financial institutions with a high uh, uh, penalty or high fee associated with that. Um, that's, that's really good. Let me add a couple of things. And, and that is, you know, we might not always acknowledge it or be aware of it, but we use financial services each and every day. Uh, each time we use our credit card, our debit card, uh, when we use, for example, even a, a PayPal, when we use uh, Venmo to transfer funds between friends at a restaurant, for example, when we use Ventra for public transportation, um, even when we use our, our Dunkin' Donuts card. Um, each of these cards and the transactions is tied to some sort of financial institution that processes the payments and, and transacts all this business on our behalf in the background. 
Um, now we use these cards and payment processes for convenience and they provide many of the, of the immediate needs that we may have, but they don't fully answer the need that establishing an account at a depository institution may be able to provide. A depository institution is able to provide a lot of, uh, of these products and services, so they are able to address um, our needs from a holistic approach. Now, historically, banks and, and credit unions, they've been uh, a kind of a primary source to address all of our financial services, and they continue to serve a really a significant component meeting those needs. Technology, um, access to financial services continue to be a big part of what and how banks and credit unions continue to be uh, key um, as financial institutions and to serve all of our needs. Thank you to both of you for that very, very good answer. We, I think Nikki and I both agree that uh, it's very important to have access to safe and secure ways to save your money or spend your money or have those financial transactions that you guys kind of went over in detail, and I appreciate that. Uh, so Director Ray Winkle, uh, I know you're an expert in this area. Can you explain what it means to be unbanked or underbanked? Uh, yes, there's actually um, two federal agencies that um, track under an unbanked in the United States, um, both on the, um, both entities that both Francisco and I deal with. Um, one is the FDIC um, and the FDIC for people that don't know, uh, they're the ones that provide depository insurance to um, banks. Um, and they do a survey every couple of years around under and unbanked households in, in the United States. And their definition of unbanked is that households that don't have any checking or savings accounts are considered unbanked. Households that have checking or savings accounts but rely on alternative financial services are considered underbanked. And rely is where you get into a question of difference between the FDIC and the other entity, which is the Federal Reserve. Um, and the Federal Reserve has a slightly different definition for underbanked so um, uh, in terms of reliance. Ultimately though, for, for everybody at home, the importance is the people that have, are unbanked don't have access or are not currently seeking access to a checking or savings account. And underbanked are those that might have that access but are also primarily using um, alternative financial services outside of um, the depository space. Can you clarify um, how uh, checking and savings accounts might need to be defined? I've heard of them as depository accounts from a legal perspective. So checking and savings accounts generally are accounts at a institution that are insured um, and have some sort of interest rate attached to them. On the banking side, and I know Francisco can go over on the credit union side, that means being insured by the FDIC. Um, and that means that up to a certain limit, um, if that bank uh, fails or something with that institution falls apart, um, that the, the, the depositor is made whole. Um, these institutions hold your money. Those are deposits and therefore they're called depositories. Credit unions are very similar. Um, and I'm sure uh, Francis is going to explain that 
um, they also hold deposits and just have a slightly different uh, mechanism to do that. Alternative investments, um, for the most part, do not have that depository aspect to them. Um, and these can be anywhere from pawn brokers to, to title loan locations. So, Francisco, did you want to add anything there? No, I, I didn't really have much to add. You know, uh, Chase did an excellent job of summarizing. Um, if anything, I'll just add to, to maybe just a, a final note, and that is literally, you know, unbanked is not someone who does not have a bank account with a bank or a credit union. Um, and uh, if someone uses other financial services outside of a bank or a credit union, that's someone who is probably underbanked to meet um, that uh, they use uh, other services to meet their needs. So is that something like payday lenders? Well, payday lender provides uh, some credit uh, access for individuals who may not have access to credit uh, via, like, for example, other forms of credit, such as a credit card or, or a bank loan. Um, but that is considered a financial service. If you're talking about, um, and that's for lending, if you're talking about depository products like a, like a, a savings account or a checking account, there really is not that much difference between a bank and a credit union. Um, you know, they, it's, they have the same principle, basic understanding of, you know, savings accounts primarily used for savings with some limitations in, in withdrawals and a checking accounts primarily used for, you know, to, to conduct your transactions on a daily basis. Uh, sometimes they're tied to a debit card so that you can use it at any uh, point of sale service location uh, or so that if you can want to write checks or send money, um, that's what you would use your checking account for primarily. And, and let me just make one distinction and maybe this gets a little bit off topic and, and Francisco can kind of rein me in if, if necessary. Um, think of it this way. Depositories, they make their money by lending out primarily um, capital that they receive through deposits. So for banks, if you have a deposit account with a checking or savings account, they're lending a piece of that out um, to small businesses, um, you know, for, for housing, mortgages, things like that. And, and, and that money then comes back to the depositor uh, in the form of interest. And then the profit for the, for the institution is built on those financial uh, mechanisms. Same with the credit unions, although, you know, it's slightly different, but it's similar based on the deposits that are being held by the institution. That's not the case with you know, some of your payday lenders, some of the, the other entities that are not depositories. They don't have deposits, so they can't use that capital to do the same sort of lending. Instead, they, they charge other fees associated with their lending, which is why you can see a difference in charging between those of pe people that have checking and savings accounts and those that don't. So just to, to summarize from the perspective of unbanked and underbanked, um, consumers that are using financial institutions or depositories in order to manage their funds uh, are not in that underbanked or unbanked category. People that are using those alternative methods that you described, like payday lending or um, cashiering, I think, uh, director... Minshaka, you mentioned a few other things that you kind of oversee as well that are outside of the purview of uh, fin traditional financial institutions like banks and credit unions that would be services that underbanked and unbanked populations might be using. Correct? Ye yes, yes. So um, if someone does not have an account with a bank or credit union, they would be considered unbanked. 
it is possible for someone to have an account with a bank or a credit union, but still rely on alternative financial service providers. And they may be unbanked because they are relying on these alternative financial service providers, such as a consumer lender, a payday lender, a currency exchange, a check casher, or a money transmitter. All of those services um, and, and products are available at a bank, but if someone turns to an entity outside of a bank, it could be that they are underbanked. And they may reach out to um, alternatives other than the bank for many reasons, a number of reasons. But uh, it's possible for someone to have a bank account and still use the payday lender, for example, or a consumer lender. Well, so the terms underbanked and unbanked may be new to a lot of people listening right now, but it's not a new problem for America. In fact, according to a 2017 FDIC national survey of unbanked and underbanked households, 25% of the American population, which is about 55 million people, are either unbanked or underbanked. So can you guys talk a little bit about what factors into someone being unbanked or underbanked? Why don't people have access to these accounts or financial institutions? Um, I was going to mention that, uh, you know, just to, to put uh, maybe a different uh, perspective on the numbers you shared, you mentioned about 25% of the American population. So um, to that number, there's about, about 8 million households that are classified as unbanked, which means that that household doesn't have uh, someone in that household who has a banking account. Um, at a bank or a credit union, they don't have a, a savings or a checking account. That's 8 million households. And there's about an additional 24 million households that are underbanked, which means they may have a, an account at a bank or a credit union, but they still rely on an alternative financial service provider. So that, that's, that's uh, quite a lot of people in, across the U.S. Um, now, many of them, you know, um, don't have a bank account for a number of reasons, such as they are not able to maintain the minimum balances or per, perhaps they don't have the appropriate ID to open a, an account uh, at a bank or a credit union. Um, some households are unfamiliar with, um, with depository institutions because they may be immigrants and they're new to the country and they don't understand how a depository um, institution works or potentially their family just traditionally has not had a relationship with the depository um, institution and others just may prefer not to have a bank account for, for personal reasons. So um, I think Chase might have a little more to add about that. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, there's a wide variety of reasons why somebody would be under or unbanked. Um, there are, uh, to some of the, some of the uh, issues that, that Francisco brought up, um, a lot of people are afraid of minimum deposits um, there's a lot of banking accounts that require you to have a, a certain amount of money in your in your account, um, and they're worried that if that gets uh, too low, they'll they'll get charged a penalty. Um, there's also overdraft fees and things like that that people worry about with deposits. Again, that's not um, true across the board with all banking institutions and credit unions, but it is something that a number of people get worried about. There's also things like banking deserts, um, which are going away. Um, because there's more and more um, financial products that are available online um, or digital banking. Uh, but um, if your banking institution or credit union goes away from your certain area and there aren't any addition, like relatively uh, close um, 
institutions for you to move to, a segment of that population usually becomes under unbanked and especially in rural areas where maybe internet strength isn't as, as, as good, there is an access to some of those digital banking tools. Um, and this traditionally hurts a lot of folks that are seniors who um, are used to being with one banking account and sometimes go away. The, the, there's a lot of cultural aspects to certain religions that don't like to charge certain interest rates and things like that, that can cause somebody to become unbanked. And then there's, like uh, Francisco mentioned, um, there are some issues when you have certain communities that have a bad uh, reputation within the banking community. They see the banking community, the deposits community, maybe negatively. And that could be from a historical past of being um, pushed out of that um, community. We see that a lot in African-American communities. Um, it could also be a perception in how people get credit, um, it, where certain communities don't believe those depositories would be giving them a fair shake. Now, uh, hopefully that is changing um, some of those mentalities, but those longstanding issues um, still remain. And uh, the last group that comes up every once in a while, which is quite um, unusual from time to time, is military, which has a lot of travel to them. And you see a lot of um, more uh, non-depository predatory lending space um, go up around uh, bases and things like that, cater products to veterans specifically because it's tough for them to be at one institution over time. Again, as technology improves, um, that's getting better, but that has historically been an issue. So with all these different factors contributing to unbanked and underbanked populations or difficulties accessing financial institutions, um, what sorts of issues arise for consumers that are unable to be banked or, or they choose to be in a situation where they're unbanked or underbanked? So um, the issues with being under and unbanked is associated with, with two things. If you don't have a banking or checking account um, or, or savings account, most the, the, most the only areas that you really can go to to cash your, your check is through uh, an entity that will charge a fee upfront. Famously, it's called check cashing locations. There's a lot of different institutions within that greater scheme. Um, but you're basically being charged access to your own money. And that can be small in the beginning, um, but that adds up. And, and, and traditionally, this group of entities are, uh, the, the, this group of people that use uh, check cashing places and things like that tend to be on the lower income side. Um, so every dollar has added significance to somebody that is in, in that, that state. The other, the other issues too is um, your, your money isn't being held in a depository, therefore you're, you're either keeping it at home um, or, or in some other location and that can be challenging to folks. And you don't have a good access to some of the lending products that banks and credit unions can provide um, that deal with small businesses, um, home loans, things like that. There are other products out there that tend to be more expensive um, and it, it tends to be more challenging for that cohort to, to get access to those products. Um, and you, and I don't have much to add, but, but I will say that, um, uh, that using multiple financial service providers 
will tend to increase your costs. Um, and it also could result in kind of an uncoordinated response to meet all of your needs. Um, and as your needs grow and they become more complex, um, you want to hopefully take a look at, at all your financial services needs in, in kind of com combine them to take advantage of, of the benefits of what a depository institution has. And they usually are able to provide all kind of your financial services needs in one place. So for example, when you're in college, you may um, have a need to, uh, to pay for your meals and your transportation and tuition, but as you start working, your employer, they're going to want to pay you directly depositing your, your compensation or your wages in a bank or a credit union, for example. Um, as you get married and have a family, you, you may want to purchase a, a car, a home, and start thinking about investing for the future. And those are the things that, that uh, traditionally banks and credit unions are able to house all in one place and, and you establishing a relationship with, with a depository institution allows you to do that. Um, otherwise, you know, again, you, you, you have multiple service providers and they may not be able to, it's up to you to make sure you're managing the multiple service providers and you're coordinating between them, but also managing the costs because if you have multiple providers, you might have multiple costs, which, which could increase costs for you the long term. So let's, maybe we should get at those costs. So historically, there have been a lot of different measurements on, hey, what is the cost of not being banked? And you can go back and, and see many different measures. There was a lot of stuff in the 90s and early 2000s doing different um, entities. But um, some of the recent numbers um, say that it, just for having access to your cash going through um, I believe this was a nerd wallet, um, if everybody goes onto the nerd wallet thing, but um, the, the cost of just cashing your check on average for somebody that does not have a banking account costs them roughly $180, $182 a year. That's the problem with that is not that that, that is an absorb, exorbitantly high number, um, although for a lot of families it is. Um, the problem with that is if I have a checking account, I pay none of that to, uh, to a year. So it's added costs. And as, as Francisco said, um, access to lending, things like that are also way, um, way costlier for entities that don't have access to traditional banking accounts. And, and let me just, just uh, add one thing. Um, that you, you likely will be able to save quite a bit of money um, if you have um, a relationship with a bank or credit union. But in certain circumstances, there, there are some costs in having um, a savings account or checking account. Sometimes those cars, costs are related to maintaining a certain minimum balance, or sometimes there is a, a fixed monthly cost in maintaining that account. So um, it is important that you're aware of what those costs are and that you for sure you maintain your minimum balance or make sure that you, uh, you know, are aware of what you'll be assessed on a monthly basis so that you can maintain your account at a, at a financial institution. And I'm really glad you brought that up because um, there has been a movement um, recently, um, and this started in San Francisco around um, Bank On, which uh, is this movement by both governments and financial institutions banks and credit unions about adopting standards um, to uh, so that those things like minimum deposit fees, overdraft fees, ATM fees, um, transfer overseas fees, uh, remittances, those things, uh, minimum 
or just general monthly deposit, those things are not included in those accounts. And people can go and, um, to, to, to search for those type of accounts. There are both banks and credit unions. There's a bank on um, program through the city of Chicago. I was part of the effort here in Illinois to, to establish that program here in Illinois, which both um, Francisco and I will be uh, more a part of going forward. Um, but there, it's important to note that when you're looking for a banking account, know that there are accounts specifically designed for people to avoid some of those fees. That's great. Thanks, guys. So now that we have kind of gone over why it's important to have an account um, and some of the disadvantages people have um, when they don't have an account, let's dive into um, the financial institutions, the banks and credit unions that can help consumers. So Director Rainwinkle, can you give us an overview just of what a bank is and how it works? Yeah, so a, a bank, um, which is very similar to a credit union, uh, banks are depository institutions, so they receive deposits um, from individuals and they use those deposits to then lend out money, um, whether that's mortgages, um, small business loans, etc. And that's how a bank uh, makes its money. It pays back its depositors through the form of interest. Um, and you, you, if you have a, a account at a bank, you'll make a little bit of interest uh, every year. Um, and that's the banks um, um, trying to make you whole for being able to hold on to their money. Um, you also get the, set of the, the security of having that money stored in a banking institution, which are insured um, federally. And that goes back to uh, the Great Depression, actually, um, where you have depository institutions on banking institutions, uh, up to $250,000 uh, in your account. That number has changed over time. It'll probably change over time going forward. Um, but that means that if the bank fails or if there's any sort of problem with the institution, your money is safe and backed by the federal government. Banks are also uh, traditionally uh, owned and run by a board of directors with a president. Um, they are private institutions. There are a few exceptions to that, one being the State Bank of North Dakota, which is actually publicly owned. But for the most part, they're private institutions. They operate as private companies and um, they're insured by the FDIC. Um, let me uh, talk a little bit about credit unions. And as uh, Chase mentioned, um, credit unions and banks, there's a lot of similarity. Uh, credit unions have savings accounts. They've got checking accounts, credit cards, uh, auto loans, home loans, uh, business accounts and loans there as well. Um, many credit unions have branches, drive-through service. Um, they have online platforms. You can access your account online. They have form services as well. Um, so as, for, as far as products and services, there's not a lot of difference between a bank and a credit union. And so a consumer really has the opportunity to make a choice based on convenience um, and the ability for that institution to meet all of their needs. Um, uh, Chase talked a little bit about who owns a bank. So let me talk a little bit about credit unions because there is a little bit of a difference there as well. So um, the credit union does differ from a bank in a few important ways. Um, a credit union is a member-owned financial cooperative. It's controlled by its members, and it operates on the principle of people helping people. So in a sense, its members are helping other members 
to buy their cars, to buy their homes, and, and to save money. Um, so worldwide, credit union systems, they vary significantly um, in, um, in not only in the size and the type of, of credit union, but also they range from smaller volunteer uh, operations with just a handful of members to large institutions with several billion U.S. dollars and hundreds of thousands of members. Um, uh, in 2018, there was um, worldwide about 274 million members um, and uh, about 40 million or so have been added since uh, just in the last few years. In Illinois, we have about three million members um, across 190 or so institutions and uh, credit unions, state chartered credit unions, and they have about 50 billion in assets. So credit unions tend to be a little bit smaller than banks, but, but uh, they still feel quite an important need. Um, as I mentioned, uh, credit unions are able to provide small business lending, and then they've been able to grow that part of their portfolio over the last few years. Um, and in general, people have a pretty good uh, kind of perception and feel of, of credit unions because um, they tend to be members, and, and they, in a sense, they're, they're kind of a part owner. So let me talk a little bit about that, um, because as uh, a bank considers someone who's their customer or who has an account with them a customer, but with a credit union, what you are is a member. And um, in order to become a member, you may need to meet specific requirements, such as you may need to be uh, an employee of a specific company or industry, like uh, a teacher or, or a plumber or a firefighter. Um, or you may need to live in a specific geographic community uh, or maybe even a part of a, a faith-based community church to become a member. Um, you may also become a member because your spouse or your parent qualifies as a member, and so that allows you to become a member, for example. Um, the important thing to remember is that you become, as you become a member, and as a member, you are part owner of this not-for-profit not, not credit union cooperative. Um, but let me just explain a little bit about, about the not-for-profit. You've got to distinguish that from what a charity is. The credit unions are, are not-for-profit because of their purpose is to serve their members rather than to maximize profits. Uh, so unlike charities, credit unions do not rely on donations, and they are financial institutions that must make um, – what is in, you know, in economic terms, a profit. Um, but those profits usually are shared among all of its members um, uh, at the end of the year. So that's kind of with some share building that they are able to provide to all of their memberships. So those are the few of the, the, the major differences between banks and credit unions and, and how they differ. So we've talked a lot about all these different aspects of financial institutions, understanding the underbanked and unbanked population. Um, and we, as you already have alluded to, know that fees themselves related to financial institutions and the accounts associated with them can be a barrier for people. So um, when people are comparing the different types of financial institutions to choose from, what types of fees should they watch for or compare costs on? Whoever I, wants to go first. Yeah. I, I can go first, I'm sure uh, Francisco can add. Um, some of the items that you should be on the look for when you're trying to open up an account or, or go to a financial institution is, if it's a depository, make, it, make sure you look at what minimum deposit fees exist. 
um, if there's any check cashing fees associated with them, if checks are free, um, if there's any ATM fee breaks, if there's any fees for remittances and what those can be um, up to, um, if there are any sort of withdraw over uh, overdraw fees, um, items related to penalties um, associated with that, uh, and that's and that's true on the credit union side as well. Um, Francisco, did you want to add any? Uh, no, that's about it. Again, um, on the depository side for savings accounts and checking accounts, there are there's not a lot of difference between banks and credit unions. Um, you know, as we've discussed already, uh, you know, keep an eye out for minimum balances, keep an eye out for monthly um, account charges, uh, just open to maintain your account open, for example. Um, main, um, keep an eye out for a number of transactions that are allowed on the account. Sometimes if you go above those minimum number of transactions, there are fees. Uh, we've talked about overdraft fees for overdrawing your account. Um, you have to be aware of that. And just be aware of any um, additional costs for additional services that you may have. So it's possible that, that one institution may have a, uh, a, uh, you know, a lower minimum balance and perhaps lower charges. But as you begin to expand your needs and look for additional uh, services, those costs can be uh, can be expensive. So, you know, as you continue to understand your needs better and grow your needs, uh, the important thing is, is to is to shop around. As a good consumer, you want to shop around to make sure that that the uh, provider that you are uh, using is able to address all of your needs, but also is able to do that uh, competitively uh, priced as well. Something else people should probably just be on the lookout for or know about as well is interest rates, correct? And they can also have an impact on accounts at a bank, credit union, the loans that you take out there as well, if somebody just wants to quickly kind of. Yeah, so there's two, there's two interest rates you're probably referring to. So first you have, um, this is not so much for the credit unions because they have that membership structure, but for banks, you get a rate of return for having your, your deposits in that bank and that's called an interest rate um, that is paid back. Those have traditionally been, at least recently, very small. Um, but you can shop around to banks and there are different types of accounts too. Um, that uh, there are time deposits which require you to keep your money in a, in a bank for a, a longer period of time. They pay you a higher interest rate. There are things like that. And then there's the interest rates on the lending. So if you're looking for a specific lending product, um, it's good to shop around to see what other options are out there um, to see if you might be able to get a lower um, interest rate on your home loan or your um, or your or, or small business loan. Uh, it's also important to remember um, the factors that go into your credit score and your credit history and that um, opening up too many of those can cause issues down the line. But it's good to shop between um, those two entities. Can you just clarify um what you meant by remittances it's not a common term at least consumer facing term can you just kind of expand so, on that a little bit yeah so remittances are usually uh you can i'm wondering if there's an fdic definition for it i don't believe there is but it's essentially uh can be mail orders or money that you're sending um if you're not from like let's say the united states and you want to send money to your family 
that is in Germany. There is a remittance that you can do to, um, to Germany so that they, they can have that money. And there's um, fees usually associated with those. Um, and they can vary, they can vary country to country and they can vary product to product. So, um, you know, good to keep that in mind. So uh, an example might be, or a more commonly used term might be a wire transfer. Yeah, I mean, I, I go away from wire transfer because there's also wire transfers between banks and companies and things like that. Yeah. Um, but what it is, is yeah, it's a transfer of your funds from your uh, banking account or, or just from your money. So you can, you, can, you, know, you can do a remittance without a bank or without a credit union. And um, it's the charge that it is to get there and access to whoever you're sending it on the other line. I did have one other thing that has been brought up briefly that I think will really have um, a importance for college students. Um, and I, you know, Francisco and I have ha had talked about this before too. A lot of people are, are, might say, well, I don't, I don't need a bank account or I don't need a credit union deposit account. I don't need checking or savings because I use um, an online provider. I have my money in PayPal or I have my money going to Venmo or something like that. And each one of those entities are very different. Some of those um, entities are not insured at all. And if that company were to disappear tomorrow, your money's gone. It's not the case with a bank. Now, some of those entities do have insurance. They either keep their money in a custodial bank or they are a bank themselves in a weird way. Um, but it's important to know that those aren't the same. They aren't all the same entity. And that I know a lot of people struggle with and keep quite a sizable amount of money on some of those sites and some of those apps. And that could really come into an issue down the line if there's any sort of discrepancy within those funds. Whereas with credit unions and banks, that's all very protected um, on the depository side. I think that's a good clarification. And I'm not sure that, you know, I've, I work primarily solely with college students. So I'm not sure that college students specifically would be subject to like that mindset, but definitely younger people would probably more likely to be using things like mobile wallets, which we're planning to cover, I think, in a month. Yeah, yeah I think later. <laughs> in a few weeks. Oh, gotta get it together. Because, um, like, we have direct deposit for student refunds, and our direct deposit enrollment rates across the system are very, very high. So, it it leads me to believe that most of the college student population is probably banked, but there's there's definitely a risk there, and it's good that you mentioned it. And we can plug our upcoming <laughs> podcast on it. I'll say that our our conversations with banks and stuff, you'd be surprised at how high that number is. It's also like one of those entities where People are like, yeah, I have a banking account and I put, I keep some money on this app, but it's not that much. But if you actually looked at the app, they have, you know, $3,000 on there, which is a lot of money um, and can be really, it, and you know, the smallest thing can be a problem. And I'm not saying don't use those apps. I'm just saying be careful before you primarily. Know what the security is. Know how safe your money is. Well, and I'm going to kind of jump in um, with that because we also know that uh, with 
the pandemic, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a lot of different struggles that people are people are just facing a lot of different struggles. Businesses are facing different struggles. I know, for example, some of the businesses that I normally go to started using a PayPal account to pay and then deliver services, things like that. So can you guys talk a little bit about what banks and credit unions have done during this crisis, the crisis to try to help their customers, if there's anything specific that they've done, or and how do customers know if they have any options? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and um, one that both banks and credit unions have sought to address. We've tried to seek to address that um, through some of the regulatory things that we do, um, but also banks individually. And a lot of depository institutions at the start of the crisis, they started working with their customers who had loans, who had mortgages that were due, who had um, you know, small business payments, things like those type of aspects to try to create forbearances or some sort of breaks on rates and things like that. So it was easier for folks that were suffering during that time period um, to, get, to get extra access to capital or to not have to pay all the interest fees that they normally do. Um, not every institution, um, you can always find someone who isn't doing that, but a large number of different institutions have been trying to work with their customers to provide some sort of relief. There was also the federal PPP program, um, which provided lending from the federal government um, that had a relief uh, aspect to it that could be forgiven relatively quickly. Um, to give more access to small business loans to keep people on payroll, which is a real struggle during this time period. And a number of banks uh, used that program in Illinois, and a number of credit unions did as well, I, I, I am sure. Um, and there's varying issues with that program um, and who got certain money and things like that. But it was another aspect for institutions to try to provide small um, small business lending around payroll. And then probably um, a, a thing that was specific to Illinois, but has happened in other states was um, with the stimulus checks, there were some concerns that when those were received, and if you didn't have a bank account, you would have those people would have to pay um, specific uh, cash checking fees or things like that in order to get aspects or access to that stimulus account. And, and that stimulus money was obviously used to try to help people get through the early part of this crisis. Um, and another problem with that is those who didn't have a, a bank account um, tended to need that money the most. Um, you know, only 1% of fully banked individuals in the United States um, are in, in what's called, in what's un, are, are under the poverty line. Um, whereas that number is much higher for under and unbanked. And it also affected um, communities of color disproportionately. 50% um, of, uh, you know, 50% of African-Americans are fully banked compared to 85% of, of, of white individuals. So there's that dis, disproportionate hit. And some of the banks here in Illinois and also in other states, um, which normally do not accept 
ca uh, checked cash checks for non-customers, um, waived uh, any sort of uh, checking fee for checking those individual stimulus checks. So those were some of the things that they were doing. Um, Francisco, did you want to add anything? Uh, sure. The um, I guess what, I wanted, what, I wanted, what I wanted to add is that um, if you know uh, a family or a household has been struggling because of the pandemic, um, and if they've been adversely affected uh, due to something regarding the pandemic, the important thing to do is probably to reach out to your financial institution to see if they do have an ability to uh, potentially modify. Um, a payment plan or to waive certain minimum balance requirements or um, to waive certain fees for the time period that you may have been affected. Uh, sometimes they were able to defer payments on credit cards or loans. And again, each institution is a little bit different. So you really need to check with the institution that you're working with in order to see whether they might be able to, to make some sort of accommodation. Um, and even out, outside of uh, the depository institutions, banks, and credit unions. Um, we had the the kind of those alternative service providers, consumer lenders, uh, check cashers that made accommodations for their customers in reducing some of their fees. Uh, they recognized the impact that the, uh, the pandemic has, especially for those individuals who are um, unbanked and underbanked, and and they uh, they were able to step up and provide some. Uh, uh, some relief in regards to uh, fees and, and the amounts they charge during these last few months. So uh, again, it's important to, to reach out with whoever you are using as your service provider to find out whether they have um, any options that you may be able to, to rely on given that you may have been uh, adversely affected due to the pandemic. Maybe it's yourself personally, but someone within your household, sometimes it's um, uh, a whole household that's affected because somebody else within the household has has lost some uh, some income. So, uh, so the important thing again is to, is to reach out to your service provider, your bank, your credit union, or whoever that financial service provider may be, to see if they can provide some uh, some relief of some sort. Great. Um, so, real quick, we know that you guys are the directors of um, your divisions and that you help regulate the banks and credit unions. But can you guys tell us a little bit, just real brief, um, you know, without getting too far into the weeds for people, but what does that mean that we have these regulators in Illinois watching credit unions and banks and working with them? And does that mean that every credit union and bank in Illinois you guys regulate or no? Um. So that's a great question. Um, both both uh, Francisco and I um, regulate state chartered entities. Um, and what that means is that we examine them on a periodic basis um, regularly. Um, and um, we are we're, we're, we're looking at them mostly for safety and soundness, but other compliance related issues to make sure that there isn't fraud going on, that they have the proper management um, all those sorts of uh, items so that those banking institutions can provide those services uh, and they're providing them safely. Um, we do not regulate every single bank that is here in the state of Illinois because um, like credit unions, um, banks can be chartered on the state level 
and they can be chartered on the federal level. Um, and those nationally chartered banks, which are traditionally, although not all the case, always the case, your larger institutions, um, you know, your JP Morgan Chases, your Bank of Americas, um, those entities are regulated by the OCC, um, as well as the Federal Reserve and FDIC, depending on what their partnerships are. Um, we regulate just the state entities and we do not um, examine um, the national charters. Yeah. You know, just to add for, for credit unions, um, again, not very different than, than what banks are. They're, not only are they uh, regulated at the, at the federal level, um, but uh, here in, in Illinois, um, after an institution is chartered, we, and I'm talking about we as a, as a, as a division here of financial institutions, we review the, uh, the, uh, and audit credit unions on a periodic basis to make sure that they are in compliance with all the various acts, not only at the state level, but also at the federal level. So for example, um, acts that prohibit discrimination in lending or, um, uh, or access to depository products. Um, and since banks and credit unions um, are insured uh, by uh, federal institutions or in the case of credit unions by a private insurer, and they have the security of, of having those deposits insured, they must also comply with all of the various acts at both the state and federal level. So that's one of the benefits of having your insured deposits. You've also got to maintain your compliance. If you're non-compliant, you could potentially lose that value of it being having an insured deposit, which means that you would change um, and not be a chartered institution, which means that you are, um, you know, you, you run additional risks. So we have trained examiners who come out and evaluate uh, and audit credit unions on a periodic basis, as I mentioned. Um, they make sure that um, that the systems and the, the banks and the credit unions are operating in a safe and sound manner and they're, they're in full compliance. So um, we continue to do that. It's important for the benefit of, uh, of all the members for credit unions and customers for banks, for example. And one other thing um, that is, that it, you know, that's very similar to us too. Um, the, other, the other thing that we monitor are um, sales of banks. Um, we review them if there's a change in control of the ownership of a bank and and we charter new in institutions. So if there's a new bank that is going to start in Illinois, that's a state chartered entity, they have to go through a process with us. And unfortunately, if a bank um, fails or it, it winds down, we're also part of that process on the state chartered way um, to wind down some of those deposits, um, make sure everybody's assets are safe um, and sound for that final period. Yeah. And then we also had just one last thing. Uh, uh, I think it may have been mentioned, but uh, uh, the Division of Financial Institutions here for the state of Illinois uh, audits state chartered institutions. Uh, similarly to banks, there are some federal chartered institutions um, that we do not uh, audit or regulate. Um, there's about 190 that are state chartered and there's probably another 75 that are federally chartered in the state of Illinois. Thank you. That was a good overview of how you regulate different institutions across the state and which you don't. So thank you for that. So as we're wrapping things up, you've talked a lot about the different aspects of financial institutions and, and uh, what to consider. If someone was to come to each of you and ask for a piece of advice about opening an account, either at a bank or credit union, what advice would you give them? Director Raywinkle, would you like to go first? Okay. Uh, yes. Um, what I would give in terms of advice for somebody that is opening up a bank account 
um, or credit union account or any financial product is to review the terms and conditions of that product. And a lot of times people look at all these terms around um, financial things and they, their eyes glaze over and they hate um, thinking about it. And I know that's one of the goals of this podcast is to help demystify some of those items. But really they're supposed to be laid out in a pretty concise way. And it's always important to ask the, the entities before you get into these deals about what type of fees are associated with your account. Um, can I, what, what's gonna happen to my credit if I open up a credit card? Or, um, and how is that different than a debit card and, and things like that. So it's not so much one thing that I think you need to ask around any particular financial institution. It's really just to go there, read through the terms and conditions that will be presented to you and ask questions. Whenever you have any sort of, as, no matter how dumb it sounds, ask the question and they, and they should be able to answer for you. And if they don't, don't use that institution. They're there for you. If I am going to deposit my money, it's not that so much they're providing a service to me, it's I'm providing a service to them. They can't do their lending business without my depository money. Um, and, and that's why they pay you through a form of, a, of interest. So, you know, they're there to work for you. And if you have an institution that isn't willing to work with you, um, isn't willing to give you all the answers, maybe that's not the institution for you and move on. There's plenty of, of institutions out there that are absolutely interested in trying to figure out what is best for you and what account makes the most sense. Yeah, yeah and if I can just add that, um, you know, as you take a look at making a decision on, on whether you want to open an account or not and, and where you should open an account or not, um, one thing that you want to be careful of and you want to, you do want to shop around, right? Uh, whether it be a bank or a credit union, um, you don't want to respond to the first uh, marketing mailer you receive in the mail or the first email you receive in your inbox. You know, take a look around, um, ask a trusted neighbor or friend. Um, and uh, again, to distinguish the, a part of the difference between a bank and a credit union is that of the bank, you are a customer of the bank. And at a credit union, you are a member of a cooperative. Um, so to find out whether a credit union could work for you, you need to check to make sure that you are, number one, eligible to be a member, but also determine what your, your kind of uh, benefits and, uh, and options are as a member. And uh, take a look, you know, even looking forward, take a look at, at what your potential needs may be. Um, if, uh, if some smaller institutions may not have the, the wide variety of products and services, but um, they might be able to help you get started as you um, move along your path of, of financial um, stability and growth. And uh, it's possible that a small institution will help you get to a large institution and uh, one will fit your needs better than another. So all of these things are important. And um, the more important thing is, is to, to be aware and to, to shop around for um, pricing. You know, what's, what's the cost really in, in maintaining my account? Um, and is that cost, um, you know, something that I, don't, that, that I can afford, but is that, is that cost of real value to me? So, um, again, not a lot of difference in many ways between banks and credit unions, but um, something that, you know, that you should definitely consider as, as, you, um, as you determine which, which institution best fits your needs.
All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, for our listeners, we encourage you to open up a checking or savings account and with a financial institution. If you already have one, take some time to look at some of the details of your account, as Director Raywinkle and Director Menchaco was say were saying. Um, look into what types of services your institution provides you. You may have access to service or different COVID-19 re relief options that you didn't even know about. So the more that you know about your financial institution, the more comfortable you can feel trusting your money there. I think it's important also to note that make, you want to make sure that if it's a bank, it's insured by the FDIC, and if it's a credit union, it is insured by the NCUA. We hope you enjoyed this, this podcast. Uh, our next topic later this month will be on digital wallets and financial technology. So what is it? How has it changed banking? All those ins and outs related to uh, digital wallets and, and fintech in general. Make sure to subscribe to Making Sense of Money on either Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We also post on SoundCloud if you don't want to get into Apple Podcasts or Google Play. And thank you, Director Ray Winkle and Director Menchaca. And thank you, listeners. Bye.